Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. In this episode, we are going to dig into the world of sustainability and how mindful companies are rising to the challenge, creating positive change through their business operations. To guide our journey, I'm joined by Eliza Erskine, who founded Green Buoy Consulting after completing her master's in sustainable management from the Harvard Extension School. Through her work, she integrates sustainability measures to transform businesses, working with companies across all sorts of industries. Her clients see an annual energy savings of 30% on average, while adding 38 points to their B Corp assessments. She draws on previous experience in financial services, environmental, social, and governance research in her work. Welcome to the show, Eliza. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, it's obvious just from a quick review of your bio that you're passionate about sustainability. Can you tell us about your journey? What brought you to focus on this particular path for your career? Sure. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and was raised with the sense of thinking about the environment, checking to see where you were spending money and being in nature all the time and just kind of seeing constantly the earth as a stakeholder for any interaction. Um, That was just something that my parents and grandparents really instilled in us. So when I went to study business, I heard a lecture on corporate social responsibility. And that was my first kind of exposure to that. And I was just kind of gobsmacked at the fact that you can use business as a force for change. And instead of Just one person can only do so much, but the fact that a business can make a small change that can have huge energy savings or different kind of supply chain differences was really kind of impressive to me. And that was my first kind of exposure. And then I worked um, after school in responsible investment and was looking at smaller companies in that research. And there just wasn't a lot of information that smaller companies were disclosing. Um, This was like 2010, 2011. And I just sort of noticed a lack of information on that end. and was curious why companies weren't disclosing. And then I did the Harvard Extension School's master's program to kind of develop more of a background in strategy and companies. Again, a lot of it was Unilever and Pepsi and all these big, big businesses. And I just kept thinking, who's helping small companies? What are small and mid-sized companies doing for sustainability? How do we give them access to smart help in that way? Right. So, I mean, you'd imagine that as a business grows, they have more resources from which to pick to be more mindful of creating, let's say, even a lead certified building that is super eco-conscious and doesn't use things like uh, paint that off-gasses and uses natural materials for flooring and and such like that. But that's not the case for most small to mid-sized companies. I mean, a small company, I believe, is considered something with less than 500 employees, which makes up most of them. A vast majority of people that are employed are employed by small businesses. 
What have your learnings been to just help provide, let's say, practical tools to some of those smaller to mid-sized businesses? I think a lot of smaller companies get stuck in that they will say, okay, well, we have one person that's really excited about recycling. Let's kind of let them just do all of our sustainability or they'll do it. Yes, they'll do it (laughs) as a committee. Okay, so the four people that are really excited about it. But those people don't have any incentive or have the ability to create actual change in the company. So I think companies are like, well, we have this committee, but it's not really doing anything. So being able to talk to a company on the executive team and saying, these are tasks and operational changes that you can be giving company-wide that incorporate sustainability as part of someone's job function or as part of a department's function. Then they can actually see real change from it and see the benefits that it can bring. Well, I think um, that leads me to my next question for you. I know there's often a story behind the name of a company. Mm-hmm. And even as I say your your company's name, Green Buoy Consulting, I want to be clear that I'm not saying Green Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so perhaps you could talk about that for a moment, like what motivated you to start the consultancy and choose the name and, and this path for yourself? I started consulting as a school project, actually. Again, it was that I just kept thinking about smaller companies and giving them access to these tools. The original idea was helping companies either at the business plan level or when they were really small, providing a sustainability strategy for them. Obviously, one of the first things you do when you think about a company, one of the coolest things to do is like, what do you name it? What's that? Um, And I was just writing and writing like different ideas and you're Googling synonyms for environment and eco. And it's like every name has been taken. So I just had pages and pages of different words and things. And my family every summer spends time on Vancouver Island. And so we spend time fishing and crabbing and you're in the water in a boat. And I don't know how it came to me, but this idea of a buoy, the green buoy is the buoy that directs all the boats where to go. So it's that kind of guiding force in the water. And I just kind of got attached into that idea of being a company's guide and kind of being their helper through this idea of sustainability and helping them make changes in that way. So that's how Green Buoy was born. It's interesting. When I think about that um, perspective, when you're thinking about Mariner's terms and such, um, there are a lot of companies that call themselves Lighthouse. And I've always wondered... Essentially, Lighthouse's purpose is to say, don't come onto this rocky cliff. (laughs) (laughs) Stay away, stay away. Yeah, no, do not take your boat here, right? Um, Yet so many companies will call themselves Lighthouse or something like that just because they think it's like, oh, you're guiding a ship in, but you're you're doing the reverse. You're you're saying this is a rocky bluff. Please don't, (laughs) you know, yes, you've reached the town. However, please don't come here. So in this show, we already learned that you deliver results to your clients by not only reducing their energy consumption, but also improving their B Corp assessments. So let's start with talking about how you assist your clients to reduce their energy consumption and then dig in a little bit to the B Corps. For energy, and this is kind of client-wide for everything that we're tracking, but I like to really look at their bills first and how much they're spending and how much they're using and what actions they're already taking. Obviously, a lot of that depends on what kind of business they're in and 
what their office setup is. But there's sort of, I guess, three things that I do kind of off the bat is the first is go to their electric company. A lot of towns, city governments have incentives for companies to be audited. So a lot of the time, if you go to your energy company, electric company, they will send someone for free to kind of check and see if there's places that you're leaking energy or they'll give different recommendations in that way. So that can be a big one. And then earlier, like I talked about for empowering employees, a lot of the time, it's just alerting employees to things that they should be doing. Are you turning off the lights when you leave a conference room? What is the setup for weekends? Even I love, some people don't, you know, like it from a visual standpoint, but having a reminder above each thing, turn this off when you leave. Yeah. I think we've grown accustomed to seeing those things, right? Like even in the bathrooms. The thing with looking at bills kind of over the long term is you can see in the summer we're using, you know, a lot of AC maybe. How do we adjust that? Can we introduce shades? Can we use LED bulbs? So it can get pretty complicated, but I think once you start to sort of see like, oh, well, we can just do these kind of small habit changes or talk to our landlord or talk to existing infrastructure can be easier to make those changes. And then that kind of rolls into other sustainability things. So a few years ago, we bought a um, electric vehicle as a, for example. And when we did, we um, had to install in the you know, correct charging box and plug it into our our grid essentially, right? We already have solar at home. And when we did that, we got a $500 rebate from PG&E. I imagine similar incentives exist. I mean, I think it cost us $700 to put in and we got 500 back, right? But over time, it pays for itself anyway. So it's a good investment overall, right? So I wonder if there are many instances where those types of incentives exist for the businesses that you're working with. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think, again, that kind of goes back to just doing kind of initial research and seeing what free resources are there or tax incentives, like just calling your energy company or calling a business that you know that is doing this and saying, hey, how did you guys do this? Well, I think it's important to even think about from a personal perspective in our own homes, how we consume energy. Like every time I walk out of my office, I've grown in the habit, I have two monitors I operate, right? So I've grown in the habit of turning off both my monitors. I don't just let it go to sleep. I just, you know, touch those two spots. My monitors go off as I leave my office. And that's multiple times a day. I don't know what it adds up to, but I imagine it's something. I think those reminders, even from a personal perspective in your own home, you know, open your windows if it's a better temperature outside and and don't always rely on your central air to make you the most comfortable. And so I just think that those things are good reminders for all of us. Now, as we dig into B Corps, you know, some of our listeners might be hearing about that term for the very first time. I know it might sound crazy to someone who works in this space and specifically those that work in the natural products industry like I do, but I've often been surprised by how ignorant some people even in um, executive positions seem to be about what B Corp actually is. Like they might say something as simple as, oh, well, I just think it's a more sustainable operation, right? Like there's a question mark at the end of that. So I'd love for you to just share with us what it takes to become a B Corp and, you know, the path that you help to um, put in front of companies you're working with. I like to describe B Corp as a company is legally certifying 
that they are taking people, planet, and profit equally under consideration in their business operations. So most businesses just have profit. That's the main driver. That's the main reason. And B Corp, because you are legally making changes and certifying as a benefit corporation, you are legally required to think about the people in your operations and the people in your community and the planet within all of your operations. When you go through the B Corp assessment, it looks at five main areas of your business. And those are governance, employees, community, customers, environment. And you're scored in each of those areas. And to become certified as a B Corp, you have to have 80 points or above. So each company, as they go through the assessment, um, will have different point values. And each assessment is dependent on your industry. So it's not the same assessment for everybody. It is industry dependent. And then as you go through, you can see transparently the point values that you have. And then once you're at 80 or above, you can submit to B Lab. That's the body that kind of checks out B Corps. And then they check your score and you have to show proof of everything that you're talking about. And then you pay a fee to them and then you get legally, you have to legally change your business. Companies that are already paying attention to that so-called triple bottom line, putting people and planet on the same playing field with profits. Let's let's be honest, not not every company is really even in the case where they are becoming B Corp certified. They're looking at profits still. They have to be profitable in order to stay in business. So as far as that people and planet perspective comes, is it actually something that can be enforced against? Like they have to keep all three on equal footing or they're going to lose their status? I don't know if it's so much about equal footing because I think just as a business grows, you know, you might have more environmental impact at one point. And then a couple of years later, you figure out solutions for that and you're concentrating more on people. But it's really taking both of those into account alongside profit and saying that you are going to equally put in effort. You're putting the priority there. Correct. Yes. That's a great way to look at it. You're prioritizing people and planet alongside that, the profit. So what would you say to companies that are considering making the leap that already look at their people and planet as part of what they're doing um, and endemic to what their future will be? Like, What would you say to them to kind of encourage them over that hurdle and commit to be corporation status? The good thing is that if you're already kind of in that mindset, then probably a lot of your policies are based in that. You're already making decisions that support that kind of triple bottom line. And so by becoming B Corp certified, you're just showing proof that you're already doing that. So it's really just either categorizing your impact, looking at different areas that you're focusing on, and then using that to get the B Corp status, especially you know, if you have been in business for a while and you're a very mission-focused company and you're one that is making changes that are positive to the environment, B Corp is not going to be a huge leap. And I think oftentimes it just sort of reinforces, oh, this is why we're doing this. Yes, this is... It allows them to kind of see it in a different light. But we are thinking about our supply chain. We are... You know, we do pay our everybody a living wage. Those types of things I think can be exciting for companies to see. 
Well, very good. It obviously makes them much more appealing as an employer as well. So it's important to think about that perspective too, right? You're trying to attract talent. You want talent to want to work for you. So I'm hoping you can help us walk through the process. I was thinking particularly if you had a particular company that you worked with and brought them through to B Corp status and and you're able to share, I think it would be really insightful to kind of walk us through and, and tell us what that's like. Sure. So I can't, I'm not going to name anybody to play favorites, but I'll give us sort of, I guess, how I go through it and how the types of companies that I see that are most successful in doing B Corp. When a company comes to me, they are at a place when like you were saying earlier, they're like, it's part of our mission to be thinking about the environment, or they're trying to stand out from a competitor. And they're saying, we know by actions that we're taking, we are up to B Corp standards. We just want to make sure that we're doing that and make sure that we're living out those values. So as much as they are trying to adhere to the B Corp standard, the B Corp standard also helps them internally. It does that kind of two-way. They're trying to use the B Corp to really put concrete things around their operations. And a lot of times what companies lack is that documentation. They'll say, you know, we have a mission to do this, but we don't really have it in any employee policies. Or we have a handbook that we haven't updated in five years. So it's going through the handbook and saying, are you surveying employees? How, you know, are you getting feedback from employees? Do you know the demographic makeup of your employees? And then usually I work with companies to set goals around the different material things that they're interested in or that are applicable to the B Corp application. And for most companies, that's a combination of employee and then environmental activities. I know that there are a smattering of B Corps already out there. So is there a particular resource for somebody to say search and just say, oh, I want to find out what companies in the space I'm playing are already B Corp certified? Yes. If you go to B Labs uh, website, they have a directory and you can sort by industry, you can sort by country, you, there's a search function. So I encourage companies, even if they're just like, oh, I don't know if this is big in my industry. I, I wonder if my supplier is doing this. It's kind of a gateway into, oh my gosh, this is a huge movement and a lot of different kind of companies are doing this. Um, so it can be cool to go through that directory and see. Well, I think you're seeing more and more of that lately. I know in the natural channel, it seems like um, every month there's news that somebody else is getting a B Corp certification. So I think that's all kind of an indication that it's becoming more and more mainstream, um, which I think is good overall. Now, as far as your path, I wonder if there's particular advice that you might have to give to somebody else who might aspire to also working in a similar capacity in helping companies get to a B Corp status or in just being more environmentally focused and, and more triple bottom line focused and purely profits. So I'd love for you to offer a little bit of perspective on that. Perhaps what you might say to yourself um, as you were getting started, knowing what you know today. Knowing what I know today, I wish that I had been more niched down. The reason that I like kind of being industry agnostic is I love learning about a different type of business and kind of learning new things about different businesses. But if I could start again, I would put a stake in the ground 
with an industry, whether that's beauty, it doesn't really matter what the industry is, but then you can sort of be the sustainability person for fill in the blank industry. I've seen it with a consulting company that only works with breweries. Like that sort of niche can be so impactful if you just become the sort of go-to for that industry or the go-to person that is very supply chain focused or knows a lot about water, knows a lot about one kind of specific thing, I think. And I certainly felt that, oh my gosh, if you're too niche, there will be no business. But at the end of the day, you you worry yeah. about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's common. Yeah. Like I, um, in technology as a, for instance, and I'm here in the Silicon Valley, what you see is that there's almost a hyper specialization and that that hyper specialization actually seems to track well for people's career paths. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily the way it was 10 or 15 years ago but definitely seems to be kind of the movement. Like people are becoming hyper-specialized in particular areas and then working cross-functionally with people across teams to generalize their experience as opposed to being more of a generalist. I think I took a similar approach. Like I like working on sales and marketing and at a leadership level and, 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 but at a certain point, you know, what tends to happen for me because I have the longest track record in sales, people want to, um, finger me specifically for sales leadership, even though I might enjoy working in marketing more these days. <laughs> yeah. I And I think now, especially that everything's online, everything's virtual. Mm-hmm. People, I think, are like, I want a specific... That's just the way that we think about things. I'm a beer company. I need sustainability. So if you're tagged as sustainability focused on brewery, like that, it's just kind of a... No brainer. Well, your name will come up. You'll get more referrals within the industry. They know, oh, well, I worked with Eliza and she's just focused on this industry. So she's already going to know my business or the generalities about my business. And I'm not going to have to educate her about what's different about how we run versus other companies. I also think it's interesting, a point you made earlier with regard to the fact that B Corp rules can alter a little bit based on the industry you're in. So from that perspective, it would really make sense to specialize. So I have a kind of a big question for you. Okay. I'd like to know if, if you could paint the picture of your ideal world, what impact will you have had by the time you're ready to retire? If you're ever ready to retire. I definitely want to retire. I'm, I'm thinking about retirement. Um, I think it's important to retire. I have already enjoyed kind of seeing the shift in explaining to people what I do and how a couple of years ago, I would have to explain what sustainability means, what kind of actions that meant, what B Corp was. And now it's just like, oh yeah, my I know about that or my company's thinking about doing that. Like sort of seeing the shift into recognition and not having to explain the importance of having a more sustainable company. I think sort of my ultimate goal is to have other people see the value of small business sustainability, that there is a huge market to help those sizes of companies. My mom jokes that the goal for me is to put myself out of business so that there's Mm -hmm. no, everybody's like, of course we're doing sustainability. We don't need you. You've done what you came to do here. Yeah, we're already doing it. So... I'm optimistic that that will be be true one day. So planned obsolescence. 
Yes, exactly. I, I doubt that'll happen anytime okay. soon. Maybe I'm a little skeptical, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're a realist. Well, I just think we have all a long way to come, particularly when you see the types of rollbacks we saw over the last administration in the White House with regard to our environment and um, just how we're treating waste streams. There's unanticipated hurdles that can come out of left field that impact so much of the need to create and be a more mindful uh, participant in the future we're creating as businesses, as individuals, right? Yeah, definitely. So I'm wondering if you have specific actionable tips that you'd like to share with our audience, things that individuals can do to reduce their impact on the environment in a negative capacity, or even support a more regenerative type of lifestyle too. Um, I mean, you and I have talked about this in other capacities, but we both grew up in homes and families where the environment was always top of mind. Like I have always left a room and turned the light off because that's how I was raised. And I just feel like there's a lot of things that I just kind of do naturally that I will talk to people about and they'll just stare at me like, oh, I didn't know to do that. So I think the first thing would be talking about things that you're personally doing. So thank you for the question. I think the first thing I'm trying to do is to let my local governments know what I'm interested in and what I want them to be doing. So emailing council members about food waste. Like it drives me crazy that we do not separate food waste from regular trash on like a municipal level. I have to seek out a food waste drop off because I'm in New York. Right. Well, and I mean, you you have the cement jungle of New York. I have a yard yeah. and we compost. So, right. you know, that's beautiful. I mean, I have a dog. We feed the leftover scraps of meat that we wouldn't put in the compost. And then we take the organic matter and it becomes mulch. And, you know, later it becomes soil. So that's good, right? right? Um, but not everyone has the practical means to do that sort of thing. And I, I'm seeing a movement specifically in the food category, you, you know, a ton of meal delivery kits with pre-portioned sizes, and they're, they're claiming to be more sustainable. I have a lot of questions around <laughs> how they claim to be more sustainable, around how they claim to be reducing food waste, because when I look at it, you know, it's a lot of extra packaging. It's a lot of prepackaged small little sachets that you have to tear open and create more plastic waste. I, I just can't imagine that it's actually more sustainable than a trip to the grocery store. It's, it's not gelling for me. Is what yeah, I'm I think at. the key word for that is claim. <laughs> um, <but laughs> yeah. They, at this, and you know, this is a whole other conversation, but at this point, a company can say, we're sustainable. And no one's stopping them from doing that. A lot of consumers will look at that and say, great, this maybe this is the right choice. The other tip or thing that I would encourage is I think a lot of us just buy stuff that we really don't need. And just taking a step, even at the grocery store, even everywhere, do I really need this? Can I get this from a different place? Can I get this more locally? Just sort of those like, so you're thinking in that mindset of checking in. And sometimes the answer is, yes, I do need that. But for every time that it's not and you're not getting something from Amazon or you're not getting that food box or you're searching out other places just to create, I don't know, like a check for yourself and that realization I have found to be helpful. 
Well, and I mean, I already have two young kids, a three-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, the amount of plastic that just having a child seems to introduce into your household is kind of insane. You know, one of the things that we've been doing is only or trying to only buy used, right? Like get toys from my local community that somebody posts up on, you know, Facebook marketplace or in a mommy group. Hey, I'm getting rid of this thing or a free share community on Facebook where people are swapping things they no longer need. I've been participating in those in a quest to lead a more sustainable and minimalist driven lifestyle. Yet it seems like our attic is full of stuff and it only seems to be getting worse as the boys get a little bit older. So, you know, being a mom and trying to make sure that, that my kids have an experience that isn't seen as off or weird to the point where I'm like not giving them the things that all their friends have it's kind of this hard space to be. I have a girlfriend who refuses to recycle, right? And she says, well, it all ends up in landfill anyway. And so that's just how she treats it. Um, And then her next comment is something along the lines of, um, I didn't have kids, so that's my recycling. Wow. (laughs) Which I've always thought is just a really interesting perspective. Um, You know, the reality is I did, I had children, that's plural, two kids who are obviously going to generate waste throughout their lives. So some people who take this minimalism thing um, a little extreme could might take it in that direction, which I I just mentioned because I think it's funny. That is interesting. I have never heard that before. The first for me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I mean, as someone who grew up, I mean, I have this memory of my dad has had the same backpack and he took it for my kindergarten field trip for my brother that's 10 years younger than me. He still has it and still uses it. And at the time I was like, oh, he's so uncool. Like he doesn't want any new so uncool. stuff. And now I just think what a great model to be raised with. Like now it's just like, I don't know, impressive to me that that is. Well, the useful life of that backpack was pretty extreme, right? I think I took a similar approach with our diaper bag as a, for instance, instead of doing a regular diaper bag, I got what I would call like a tactical backpack. Like it's got all these incredible pockets and it's nothing that my husband would be ashamed to carry around or me. And I bought a second one because I was using the diaper bag and wanting one for my own self to use. And and now they're both like they've been living with us for six years now. And, you know, I think I'll likely have them until, well, I'm no longer breathing because (laughs) they're great and they're, you know, serving the purpose that they were born for. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's like an important point, too. Like we're not buying disposable goods. We should get out of a perspective of buying disposable goods. Yeah. And I, uh, I agree with that. I think if you've just been raised with this sort of like, we just throw everything away or you don't see where your trash goes or you're just not exposed to that, it can be a difficult shift to make. But if you make it, it's such a huge difference. Like think about bringing a coffee cup. If you go to the coffee shop every day or like different using a plate instead of a paper plate, like different just those types of small changes over someone's lifetime have. And then when you have kids and you tell it to them, like, I think those things kind of get looked down on sometimes, but it's that mindset that you bring to work. And then you bring to conversations with other people and you kind of help spread a message that way. So what is your feeling about aluminum 
I'm just curious because my understanding is that aluminum is something like 99.9% recyclable and tends to be regenerated and continue to live on in other forms for for a long, long time. Um, So I'm curious to know what your perspective is on that. That's what I've heard too. I think there's something, it's like 99% of aluminum that has ever been, or 90% maybe of aluminum that has ever been created is still in use today. So it just keeps being reused. I saw a thing yesterday, actually, I think this is not to plug this. It's just something I saw. Um, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith have a new personal care line of like shampoo and deodorant. And it's all made with... (laughs) Why am I not surprised? (laughs) It's all made with aluminum. Mm -hmm. And I see that and I'm like... I didn't know that you could use aluminum in hair care or personal products. Like you never see an aluminum shampoo bottle, but of course. Well, they can dent, but yes, yeah. I mean, I'm they're available. I'm actually considering using it as a packaging material for a supplement that I oh. have in production, but you know, that may or may not come to fruition because consumer perception will will play in. We may end up going with glass. We may end up going with, um, you know, a corn-based plastic, which is not exactly a petroleum product. Right. So there, there are a lot of options available today in the world of packaging for products that are not single use. Mm-hmm. But, you know, generally speaking, I love aluminum. I try to, you know, limit, I, I don't buy plastic water bottles at all. I right. haven't for years. I have this vice of, you know, I like sparkling water and I like the sparkling water that's pre-flavored a little bit with lemon or, you know, orange or whatever. So I buy, you know, a house brand from my local grocery store that's got natural flavorings in them and they're great. I also know that they're likely to come back in some way without damaging the environment too much. And it's reducing reliance I might've had on plastic. Right. So I I look at that as a positive thing. I also consider glass because glass is forever inert. Like if it gets, you know, tossed into a river or ocean, it just becomes sea glass. You know, who's it really going to hurt long term, right? Yeah. I have um, a client that makes trade show booths and the whole framing material of the booths that they make is all aluminum. And it's just these panels and you take it down and put it back up. So when you think of... And they're modular, right? Yes. So they can like put them in all sorts of configurations. So when you think of that versus, you know, wood or sort of traditional materials. Yeah, or they're like melamine and they're like um, blended plastic wood things that aren't really just wood. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that just get kind of tossed, but something mm-hmm. that is aluminum. So I don't know. So much of that, I'm sure there's just like policy histories or different things about why all hair care isn't made with aluminum, you know, bottles. Yeah. Well, I think it has to do with consumer perception because for a long time, aluminum cans for beer are considered cheap. But now guess what? You have uh, Coppola Winery (laughs) coming out with their champagne and, or I'm sorry, California sparkling wine um, (laughs) in a can, right? So um, people are leveling up uh, the cans. Also, Lisa Bonet's husband, what's his name? Um, Call Drogo, right? Like Oh, Jason. In Momoa. Yeah. That's right. See, it took both of yes. us. Um, he came out with a canned water and, you know, did this whole shave his beard commercial mm-hmm. that ended up going viral. That video alone, I think, helps to get people thinking about, you know, using aluminum as opposed to plastic thinking about how recyclable, reusable it is, 
I really have looked at aluminum for a long time as being like the only truly recycled yeah. um, item that I throw in the recycle bin because of the fact that its reuse is so imminent. Mm-hmm. Whereas glass, when it breaks, guess what? They don't recycle that. I've never understood that. Like, why don't they recycle the broken glass? Right. They don't, right? If it gets broken while it's being thrown in the garbage um, truck, then, you know, that ends up being waste too. Which I would think is fairly often that it gets broken. As it's being yeah, thrown you? around and yeah. Right. So I, I don't really understand hundred percent of how that works, but it means that the yield from recycling glass is less. Glass is also more expensive to ship. Yeah. So it has a, it's heavier. It has more of a carbon footprint for that reason in that particular way. And it takes a lot of heat to rework it. I'm not sure what that is for aluminum, but you know, I've seen like videos of these giant spools being created from recycled material. And I'm like, wow, that's just, it's incredible. I think you can find videos like that just by searching on YouTube and, um, you know, see some, some incredible manufacturing happening. So is there anything I haven't asked you on this podcast that you wish I had or anything you'd like to personally share? I think with the B Corp thing, this is something that I, I think a lot of people think of it as like, oh, a consumer thing or thing that consumers look for. But I want to explicitly make the point that people want to work at B Corps. Like this is now a huge driver for hiring and employee policies, which I think is something that every single company is trying to figure out how to manage, trying to figure out how to be the best at, how to reduce turnover. So if you're looking at B Corp, do not overlook those employee benefits. Yeah, I think that is so important. I mean, I personally would want to seek out a B B Corp too. I think of a few really great examples in the natural products industry, like um, maybe some weird but really great examples like Dr. Bronner's soaps, Uh you know, like they've got this really long kind of crazy history. If you've ever read the the label, actually read the label (laughs) on Dr. Bronner's soaps, it is an entertaining and surprising journey. Let's just put it that way. So they are companies that tend to have really strong employer attention, people that stick around for a long, long time. And I think there are so many companies who are already doing all these things right, but they haven't taken the leap, which I find really curious. Like, well, why wouldn't you at this stage? It's just another feather in your cap. I think it's something that could be really, really um, helpful for the continued longevity of that company. Eliza, I just want to thank you for spending this time with me. This has been a really fun conversation. It's my first show specifically on sustainability And I have a few more coming. There's actually um, an author of a book called Sustainable Minimalism that I plan to have on soon. I think the book was just released in February. So more on that soon. Stay tuned. And I'd like you to stick around while I wrap things up. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Now, today, we got to peek behind the curtain of what it means to be a B Corp and hear from a sustainability expert, Eliza Erskine that is working to make the business world a better place. You saw how businesses can create a more meaningful connection with their customers and communities by focusing on more than just profits, putting people and planet in the same realm as they focus on building a more sustainable future. Now, I'd like to invite you to act. As I've often said, it doesn't have to be huge. It could be as simple as voting with your dollars and supporting a B Corp. Or you could just switch from plastic to aluminum. You could even just share this podcast with some friends and start a conversation about what it means to lead a more sustainable life. It's not that hard. 
To find suggestions for actions you can take, you can also always visit our website, caremorebebetter.com. There you'll find an action page dedicated to causes and companies we encourage you to support. I invite you to join the conversation and be a part of this community. You can follow us on social spaces or just send us an email at hello at caremorebebetter.com. I want to hear from you. And remember, this podcast is not an infomercial. It's not backed by the people or the companies we feature. Our purpose is to simply put more good into the world. If you like what we're doing, you can support the show by sharing it with friends or by donating directly on our site. Just visit our website, caremorebebetter.com. Thanks again for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 